0: Today, we talk about improving your travel photography on Behind the Shot. As always, welcome back to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brausel, your host, and this is the show where we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots, from conception to completion and all the stories and challenges that happen in between. As always, this episode will have a blog post associated with it, and you can find that at BehindTheShot.tv. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, and I do recommend that, that helps us a lot. It also means that you are notified every time a new episode comes out. There's a couple ways to do that. First of all, in your podcast app of choice, There is both a video option and an audio only option. So you can subscribe to whichever one you want. Of course, that only works with the video option if your application supports video podcasting and a number of them do. For example, Apple Podcasts does support video. So when you search for behind the shot, you'll see a regular behind the shot and you will see behind the shot video. The video is also available on YouTube. If you subscribe on YouTube, make sure that you do hit the bell again so that you're notified every time we come out with a new episode. And speaking of YouTube, I've started doing something with my buddy, Don Komorechka. Don Komorechka does a podcast called Photo Geek Weekly. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And Don and I are doing image critique shows. They're only available on the YouTube channel. And if you want to participate in that, here's what you need to do. Go over to Flickr and join Flickr. You can do the free account if you want to, or they do need help right now. So you can do the paid account, the pro account too. Once you're a Flickr member, join the behind the shot group and submit your image to that group. And tag it BTS Critique, not a hashtag. It's a Flickr tag. They have their own tagging system. So make sure you do that. And that brings us to today's guest. And before I bring the guest in, I just, I've got to say a couple things about her because I have been trying to get this young lady on behind the shot for so long because I am truly transfixed by her work. The stuff that she does with a camera, I just don't. Think I can do literally, so I'd like to welcome Deborah Sandage to the show. Deborah, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you about uh, everything long exposure and creative.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing, Deborah isn't is you specialize in landscapes and cityscapes and nightscapes, and it says that in your bio and it says it on your website. But I kind of don't think that that really describes you as a whole. Yes, they're landscapes, and yes, they're cityscapes, and yes, they're nightscapes. But there is this this moodiness, this this uh, transcendental feel to your imagery because you specialize in long exposures, and the stuff that must be in your head technical wise to pull off some of what you do is amazing to me. So let's talk about you for a little bit. When you talk to somebody about what you photograph. How do you describe your work? Because I failed just now. So how do you do it?
1: <laughs> Not at all. Um, I think it goes back to, I like to convey a sense of time passing in a photograph. So rather than just freezing the action in a moment of time, I like to illustrate what happens over two, three, four, five minutes. So it, to me, that's where things get interesting. So it just tells a very different story.
0: And, and you do it really well. You are a member of a rather elite group of people, by the way, the Nikon Ambassador Program. So to give people that aren't familiar with the Nikon Ambassador Program kind of a, you know, the helicopter view, let me start by saying some of the people that are Nikon Ambassadors, you're talking Bambi Cantrell, Joe McNally, Todd Young, who shoots the genre that I shoot and and a ton of other ones, explain Nikon Ambassadorship.
1: Well, it was a true honor to be asked. Um, it was very exciting, and I think it was, and really, for me, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to mentor, to inspire, and motivate, and that's the goal of a Nikon ambassador. So it was it was pretty exciting to be asked, and to continue to participate in, in the Nikon ambassador program. So it is, um, it's a really interesting way for me to be able to share what I know, and and, and also, you know, through the camera equipment, which is evolving so quickly, which is so exciting. So, yes, I'm really excited about being a Nikon ambassador well, and I'm amazing people.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there are truly Nikon ambassador when you look at the list and I did go look mm-hmm. at the list. Yes. It is a who's who of photography that you're kind of grouped in there with and Nikon's doing such amazing stuff right now with the the Z6 and Z7 or for the Canadians, the Z6 and Z7. The Z uh, yes. for the ca- Canadians in the room. Along with being a photographer, you are an author, which before I got you on, I actually didn't know that you had this book out, but it is available on Amazon, and uh, I will make sure that in the show notes on the blog post for this show that there is a link to the book in there if you want to go check out Deborah's book, Digital Infrared Photography. Explain the book to me.
1: The book is about shooting in infrared. So there was that transition between film and then to digital, and that's when shooting in infrared became much easier and much more accessible we didn't have to worry about film so it was the digital approach to how to the starting with the at the time was a filter that you'd actually put on the lens of the camera and of course then you could convert the camera so it's changed in leaps and bounds so you know we've gone through just the standard type conversions which are very classic a type of black and white imagery, which I love. And now they have hyper color and <laughs> all kinds of different effects. So I really, it's an amazing world. Um, it, there's something very different by looking at a scene in black and white and the same scene photographed in infrared. It tells a very different story, a very beautiful, surreal story. People really can't figure out what quite is different about it.
0: Well, I, I am curious, for your infrared body right now, what body mm-hmm. do you have converted? Because that's one of the advantages to mirrorless now is, you know, when you're using a standard DSLR that's converted, you can't see real time what the infrared scene is. But in a mirrorless body with an electronic viewfinder, you can. So I'm, an ima- I'm imagining that like a Z6 or a Z7 would be great for that.
1: It is actually perfect. I had a camera converted to Z7 right before I went to Tanzania because I really wanted to get those landscapes and the animals in in that type of uh, setting. It's just so much more beautiful. It's another way to tell a story. So I have the color images. I have the infrared images. So some of my favorite shots on previous trips to Africa have been in, in black and white. So, so you in, carry infrared. two
0: bodies with you when you go out shooting?
1: I actually do. Yes. And it's not so hard in, in a place like Africa, um, because you already have all your gear and it's just yet, yeah, you know, they're bother but you don't have to walk with it. If I'm walking in a city where I'm going to cover eight miles or more, <laughs> then, then it's a little a bit more of a challenge to carry everything that I want.
0: You, you are, which kind of fits in actually with the Nikon stuff and with, with the author and, but you're also an educator. So, and There's so many photographers I've had on this show that, quote unquote, are educators. And you read down the list of the workshops or the seminars that they do, and they're the standard, you know, better portraits or whatever. The stuff you do workshops and seminars in, just the titling makes me want to go. Artistic imagery, long exposure, creativity, time and motion techniques. And there's a bunch of other ones. People should go to your website, which is coming up underneath you as a lower third as, as we are recording this. Also, Deborah's website will be in the show notes. But you have something coming up in uh, August of 2020, the Sedona Photography Symposium. Now, if you've never been to Sedona before, people, Sedona is a beautiful area of Arizona between Flagstaff and Phoenix in the canyons. Gorgeous, especially when it gets stormy outside. What's happening at the Sedona Photography Symposium?
1: Oh, we've, there's a great group of speakers and and people who I consider friends. So it it's it's a wonderful experience to be collectively there and to speak about each type of genre that people do. So I'll be talking about infrared. So I am excited about that. I have that opportunity, and I'm also talking about the essence of an image. So it's more of what you feel, what you experience, um, and how to translate that to a photograph. So that's the um, basis of my keynote
0: essence of an image. Yes, I love that idea. So, okay. As we get into questions, one just popped in my head. I'm going to add to my notes here. When you talk about the essence of an image, right? I mean, obviously that's going to be subjective. I understand that. But when you are talking about the essence of an image, is that something that you think of in post only? Or are you thinking of the essence of an image during composition and when you're out there with the camera?
1: I I want people to experience what it feels like to be there at that moment. And and, and in my case, it's never just a moment. It's just like over time. So I, I want to put somebody in that position so they can, Feel what it was like to be there. See what's happening over time. So, that's usually the thought process. There's a little bit of visualization, and of course, and a little bit of creativity mixed in with a little bit of technical. I'm probably more creative than I am technical, but I know it. <laughs> know see, how to get there. And yet,
0: your technical <laughs> stuff. What What is your go to body and lens right now? And for right that now, matter, why?
1: Is, why? Oh my goodness. Well, I still have my D5. It's an amazing camera and I have my D850, but the cameras that I reach for for travel have been my Nikon Z7 and the Nikon Z6. They're both amazing cameras. They allow me a lot of flexibility in what I'm doing and they're coming out with new lenses. Um, So I haven't ever had to do without a lens because it didn't match the camera because there's an adapter. So it's allowed me to be more fluid um, and more creative. It's like I can. Get a little bit further down the road because you're not so heavy and it's it's just so much it's so easy it's not so bulky and it well, also doesn't scream like I'm a professional photographer. <laughs> it's this little yeah. bit smaller format.
0: <laughs> well, and and the electronic viewfinder is cannot oh, be overstated. What a help! Yeah, <laughs> an yes. electronic viewfinder is, and I do want to get out there because I keep seeing still to this day that and it's the same actually with the Canon with with the the R, but. These adapters that you use to adapt a Nikon Z6 or a Z7 to a standard Nikon lens, a non-Z series lens, these adapters know you don't lose image quality. You have a different throw distance for the lenses that are designed for the mirrorless cameras between the sensor and the lens elements than you do for a normal DSLR. Really what the adapters are doing, there's no optics in them, they're hollow. They're, exactly. they're adjusting that throw distance also people stop saying that you're going to lose quality. You don't, you get full quality of your lenses out of these things. Um, you, as a travel photographer, this is a question I love asking people because a lot of times it's the same app and I, and I, I get it, but a lot of times somebody will throw an app at me. Like my last guest threw out a couple apps I'd not heard of before. As a travel photographer, what mobile apps do you go to and can't live without?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So I'm always using, of course, the weather app. I'm using Photographer's Ephemeris. Um, I like oh, that. Oh, say that um, one again. Oh, the Photographer's Ephemeris. Um, that's a nice one. Uh, I like Photo Pills. Actually, that's my photo favorite. PhotoPills.
0: Yeah. Everybody loves yeah. PhotoPills. The first one I've not heard of. I'm going to look that one up.
1: Oh, it's, it's kind of neat. It has a little um, sun. Oh, I see. Sunset forecast um hopefully if, it, if it's correct you know it gives you the best opportunity to see what the weather might be like in a specific location so it helps me plan shots so I look at tide charts I look at a lot of different things um apps uh, of course I use like timer apps for the for the long exposures um but just typically a lot of resource type of maps there's a couple there's um PhotoHound, a photoscope scout. There's a location app, so that will help you with angles and things like that. If I've not been to an area, they may, you know, suggest shops. So if I'm traveling to a location I haven't been before, that you know, my friend Louis DeSenko came up with that PhotoHound. So it's a really pretty cool um, app, you know, as far as resources. So I use everything possible. I look at Google. I look at the maps. I look at the satellite view. I can figure out from this bridge where I could be to get that shot that I want. So there's a lot of homework involved. Um, but I love also just the serendipity of seeing what's around the corner. <laughs> so.
0: Well, and that, yeah, the the, yes. the random discovery. Other yes. than apps or or specifically the camera body or lens. Mm -hmm. What other photographic tools do you use? I'm assuming you use ND filters. Is there anything else like that that you you couldn't live without?
1: Uh, Oh, great tripod. Uh, You know, that's to me, it's it's just if I'm working in the realm of five, six, seven minutes, it's got to be stable. Or if I'm working in the surf, I I love to work in the water. So I'm getting a lot of action. So it has to be, uh, I'm using my really right stuff uh, tripod. For travel. um,
0: What about your ball head? Is that really right stuff too?
1: It is really ro- yes. I have a BH fifty five. I've got okay. it forever. So yes, and that that is solid, rock solid. I don't have to to worry about the only thing I have to worry about is sand shifting as far as the ocean. But um, for travel in a city, I'm, I'm really enjoying the Platypod. That's been a blast. Um, you know, they they're coming out with a new ball head which looks pretty amazing. So I have played you know,
0: with
1: so- it. Have you? Okay oh, for you.
0: Back at Photoshop World, I I uh, uh, was honored to, to go out and have dinner with Larry, the founder, and was able oh, to see fantastic. and play with uh, one of the prototypes of the Platyball. And I got to say, now understand I'm a live music photographer, so I don't use platypods a lot in the type of stuff that I shoot. But if I'm on mm-hmm. vacation or like they're, they're actually work really good for doing long stuff with a phone even. Um, so, uh, you know, it's kind of different for me. I, I'm not a tripod ball head guy normally. But, like everybody, there are times I go on a vacation or somewhere and I set up a tripod and I've got a number of them. I've got a Gitzo and I've got, you know, Enduro and stuff. And I have an AcroTech ball head right now. And when I played with that ball, I Mm got to say, there's something about that beautiful one handed, you know, I don't have to hold the camera while I loosen a knob because the camera is going to fall down. Being Mm -hmm. able to do it all one handed and the fact that it's upside down. So one of the other complaints I always have about ball heads is, yeah, they all have a bubble level, but when was the last time you didn't have to contort your body to see the bubble level under the camera? Oh, yes. So Exactly. So this is just, I got to say, I'm looking forward to the actual finished product coming out to play with it because it's going to be going to be interesting. Me
1: too. I backed it on Kickstarter, so I'm ready. (laughs) Did you?
0: Right on. I did. The red, by the way.
1: Yes, the Elite,
0: yes. Yeah, the Elite is gorgeous and it's got the digital parts on the back for level. That's kind of cool too. I got to play with that. So again, I love what Platypod is doing. I've got both the plates next to me. Uh, And while I don't use them as much as a landscape photographer would or Mm -hmm. Scott Kelby or Rick Salmon does, when I do use them, just, yeah. Okay, so let's get into today's photo because as I say, I am always transfixed by your photography and when you and I were going back and forth picking an image as soon as i saw this i kind of knew that it was in france this is the uh valensole plain or valensole plateau in france which i think is near uh the provence area en provence
1: yes yes absolutely
0: this image it just says so much to me about motion and color and subject and composition this is kind of everything that you want in a landscape photo in one shot so for those on the audio feed let me try describing this to you and as always my apologies for my failures in in text description but it's actually one of the the prettiest most beautiful color eye coloring landscapes that i've ever seen it's a, a field in france and correct me if i say anything wrong here cuz it's entirely possible that i'll say something wrong here but I believe that those are lavender plants. Yes. And on the left-hand side of the frame, there's these colorful rows of lavender plants. Coming from the bottom right corner is this beautiful dirt road that comes up, curves left, and goes out the rule of third on the left-hand side. We'll get into composition later. I shouldn't say that yet. On the horizon line in the perfect place from a vertical point of view is the ruins of a stone building. In the distance... They're not super big, but you can tell there are mountains in the distance. Again, that's a compositional thing to me I want to get into, if, and I'll probably forget. But, you know, where you place this camera height-wise made it so those mountains seem the right size next to the building and the, and the flowers as opposed to too big or too small. Very, very, very smart. And then there's the long exposure aspect. Those clouds are magically painted without being paint, Right. It's it's not like they went into Photoshop. Deborah went in with, with a Wacom tablet and a pen and started painting over this. This is long exposure, gorgeous, and the colors. Again, I can't stress the colors. The colors are 100% real. I mean, it's just you can picture you're standing here, and yet it's vibrant. Does that kind of sum it up? Did I miss anything?
1: Oh, it's very eloquent. Thank you. I don't think I could have described it as well <laughs> myself.
0: It is. Seriously, Thank people you. go to the blog post behind the shot Go look at this image because a lot of people drive in the car and listen. And I've had people tell me they try listening to the show to picture the image. Uh, most people still it's kind of 50 50. Some watch the video, some watch the audio. But those on the audio, a lot of times they, they don't want to look at the picture ahead of time, uh, which is interesting to me. So you're an icon shooter, obviously. What body did you shoot this with? What lens combination?
1: So, I shot this with an Icon D4. And also, I had my wide angle lens, which is the 16 to 35 millimeter lens. So, I came across this with some friends. We, we, we were looking um, for lavender fields, and, and it was early morning. We really wanted to get there as the light was still beautiful. And, and when I saw this, I, I was just looking at the clouds and I was mesmerized by how many and how beautiful they were. And it occurred to me that it would be so beautiful to have the opportunity to illustrate what happened over time with a very long exposure with this. So again, it's just something in, my imagination of what it might be like. I don't know what it would be like when it's finished, but what happens here in the shot is that the clouds are painted by the breeze. So they're they're wind painted clouds, basically everything else is stationary, but the wind is painting the clouds over the six minute exposure. So over that time with the neutral density filter, it gives me an opportunity to portray a a familiar subject in a very, a different way.
0: Okay. I have to, I have to, Unpack part of that here. First of all, according okay. to the exit data, this was manual mode and manual white balance. Mm-hmm. The manual white balance is interesting to me. What what do you set your white balance to?
1: Um, generally, with the filters, um, I c- can use. I don't mind using something like sunny. That's fine. I mean, it could be fine. Auto white balance. Mm-mm. That's 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 you're gonna, gonna and you
0: shoot raw so you're gonna change it in post anyway but, exactly but you mentioned the exposure time so let's clarify mm-hmm. this is 23 millimeters so it's wide mm-hmm. ISO 125 mm-hmm. f 11 makes mm-hmm. sense EXIF data shows 364 seconds which translates to about how long
1: about six minutes yeah
0: wow so. Is, is... <laughs> Wow, And that
1: just happened when I released the, the, you know, I mean, I know it sounds really like... Okay, so this isn't timed. You're
0: doing like a bulb where you're holding it open?
1: Oh, okay. So to back up, I use a calculator. So I make an establishing shot first. So I know what the exposure is for the static composition. Let's say in that case, it was... my, I, whatever it is. Like normally if I want a four minute exposure, it's about 160th of a second. There's a little calculator I can do to
0: input. So, so explain establishing shot to me for a second. I, I just want to dive into this. Okay. You're talking about, you're sure. taking like a plate shot uh, to understand what the proper exposure is for a normal photo, not long exposure.
1: That's exactly right. I do that first. And, and from there, and also like to have a before and after, which is kind of cool. So uh, I will do this and it will give me the opportunity to understand what the exposure is. And also I can look at the app and it's like, the clouds are moving pretty slow. I think I'm going to have to go beyond five minutes and then I can calculate what I need that final exposure to be. So I thought it might be nice to work out in that in that six minute range. That happens okay. to be my happy spot in photos. <laughs> so.
0: Oh, is it really? Is that common for you, six minutes? <laughs> uh,
1: it, a lot of places it is. I've done several, and I'm always so happy with that. With, But, you know, it depends on the speed of the clouds, the wind, um, what's happening. Sometimes if fits so long, it may just blow the crowd, clouds right out of the shot. So <laughs> you never quite
0: know. It was, see, but that's that's one of the interesting things about long exposure to me. And that is that when you, when you do a shot, if your calculation is wrong and you have to do it again, there's are six minutes gone. So if you have to do it multiple times, it can, it can take a very long time. What made you choose F11? I mean, obviously, you're trying to get depth of field, but you're going to have a lot of depth of field at 23 millimeters anyway.
1: Exactly. Well, part of that space is like an, uh, an equation between the neutral density filter that I was using, the, um, obviously depth of field is important. And then, and it's just, um, you know, calculating how, how long I want that exposure to be. So it's, it's always, you know, I carry, when I travel, I carry a three-stop neutral density filter, a six, a 10, a 15. I carry So you grad. don't
0: use a variable. You have multiple ones.
1: No, because I, I, you know, I like the square system. I know there's probably a question that, that might come up. Oh. I like the, 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 the flat mounts because I can assert a graduated neutral density filter, which is what I did here. Often uh, the sky will be much brighter than the foreground, right, if you're shooting. Uh, so you'll need to balance that light. So that's where it comes into. I, I really like to stop gra- reverse graduated neutral density filters. Um, that will help me balance the light and control the light where I need it to be in the composition.
0: I, I want to ask what neutral density filters do you use? Do you know?
1: Which brand of neutral density yeah. filters? Okay. So I have been using Singray. Ray. That's quite, I've been using Singray for a very long time. Um, I needed to change the filters to when I go to the beach, I, the resin filters weren't working for me as well. So I, I've been using some of the glass, re, glass reverse grads and grads. It just works out a little bit better. Salt spray, sea spray, So those are the two brands that I've actually been working with for quite a while. Uh, I see them last year for, for Nisi.
0: In this image, Mm -hmm. I mentioned the dirt trail, Mm -hmm. dirt road. Okay. Based on looking at that dirt road in detail, it looks like it had just rained even because there the road. It's not like there's puddles of water, but it definitely looks like wet sand. Is that correct?
1: It was a little damp. It might have rained. So the gravel was very saturated looking because that's the kind of terrain there is. It's very rich and, and warm and, and red in color. So absolutely. So that helps. If it's really dry, then it's it's a little bit less saturated. That's
0: it adds. Point. Yeah. I mean, it definitely brings the color. out. The building, by the way, the building adds a ton to this. I actually think the building is kind of what makes the shot, even with all that color and the compositional structure that's going on. How did how do you find this, right? I mean, I've been to France. I never saw this. How do you find these places?
1: Oh, well, local knowledge. That's the biggest thing. I had friends who kind of have been scouting around, so they they knew where this was. I certainly wouldn't know <laughs> where this was in the middle of France. But, you know, it's a matter of um, I like the farmhouse because it is gives it grounds the composition. It gives your eye a place to rest where these clouds in the background have that freeform factor. Um, and I love the lavender, you know, it's just, it's absolutely amazing to me. It smells amazing.
0: It's it, gorgeous.
1: It is so pretty. And there's lots of bees. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> they come along with it. Um, absolutely the long exposure on this, mm-hmm. it kind of makes you feel like you're, in, in the moment you see this picture it's like you're traveling through time right it's almost like you're you're fast forwarding through a moment of history type thing i love it and like you say the clouds are wind painted and there's almost a light painting effect to these clouds yes when you are traveling do you know what time of day this was
1: yes this was early morning this is just, uh, just it was actually supposed to be sunrise but it was such a heavy cloud cover that we weren't really getting that that intense, that intensity, but the clouds were promising. And and that's what inspired me to work in that direction as far as, uh, as far as the neutral density filters.
0: Which, which then brings us into when you are traveling and you're looking at a scene, what, what is it you're looking for generally? You walk up to, you know, a scene, scene A, what is it that triggers in your mind that you're looking for? And for that matter, is there a specific time of day that you're also aiming at? Is there a favorite time of day for you? But what are you looking for in the scene? What are you looking for in natural lighting? That type of thing.
1: That's a great question. Um, so when I'm traveling, I'm sort of subject to whatever I come across at a certain time. You know, this. You know, maybe I have a time frame I have to be on. Uh, I am very open. Like I was in San Francisco, and I wasn't staying too far from the Embarcadero, and I could see out my window some clouds and San Francisco most of the time is either very completely foggy or you have uh you know blue skies and I could see a little bit of this cloud structure that was moving in so I'm like five minutes I beelined it was two o'clock in the afternoon but I beelined to the Embarcadero and had my cloud pod I set it up on the seawall and I, I that was my intention I wanted to be able to show these um these interesting clouds because was, there was a um The bridge, my favorite bridge is the Oakland Bay-San Francisco Bridge, you know, it's right there. And also there was another structure I decided, and so compositionally I wanted to put those two together, but it was the clouds that's the main event. I wanted to see, again, what happens, and it was a similar exposure time, about six minutes. But as these clouds begin to roll and develop and move across the composition during that six minutes, that's what draws me in. So I'm always looking for clouds. If I see them out my window here, you know, and I will make a trip up to Sanford and be able to just shoot something interesting.
0: So, so I'm open. Do you ever add frame. your own light?
1: To a landscape or to Yeah, like um,
0: like for example, if it was darker, would you light that building? Would you set a flash behind a bush and light the build? Do you ever add any light to a scene or is it always natural?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, in London I came across this place where there was a, it was a huge, um, it's like a sundial and it was night and it was in and the, and the tower bridge was in the background, which I thought it was really, really cool. So I had some of these little rogue gels and I have a Phoenix, uh, uh, it's a, it's a Phoenix, of uh, um, little flashlight, maybe, um, PD 35, that's the name of it. So I was able to take a small gel and just Illuminate. I just sort of light painted it, so it's you know fun stuff to be able to, to do that. As far as illuminating, seeing it's possible. Um, up in um, the New York, there's um, the Brooklyn Bridge Park, and if I wait long enough, the city lights behind me will illuminate the foreground of all these old pilings. So it's sort of a natural thing. So I, have to, I just wait; the lights come on, they illuminate my foreground, then I can make my shots. <laughs> so, so there's a variety of ways. But, um, yeah, I, I, in looking at this
0: shot, I could picture this taken at night again, long exposure, mm-hmm. but you could flashlight on that building, but here you clearly don't need that. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud. So let's talk composition here for a minute. Sure. The horizon line. Okay. So there's, there's so many compositional rules and, and yes, for those people that are new to photography, break the rules, learn them first, then go break them. But this one follows so many compositional rules that just make it, this is kind of the definition of what, why these rules exist. So the horizon line is not dead center. It's down towards the lower rule of third. Then because clearly the main subject is more the sky effect than it is the ground effect. The road coming from the bottom right corner, coming up through a rule of third off to the horizon line on uh, effectively a rule of third. You could have switched that. You could have raised it. And had the the horizon line on the top rule a third and, and shown more of the foreground. But in that case, based on the path of the road, you'd just have more road. Here, you got the sky and, and the plants are at the bottom. And by the way, speaking of the plants, you did the absolute perfect crop on this because one of the mistakes I could see certain landscape photographers making is – they would crop too high into that row. You manage to keep, you know, that whole row and crop below the row of lavender at the curve of the road. Compositionally, there's just so many things going on here. And again, I mentioned the mountains earlier, and the building for that matter. So where you are on your tripod vertically, right? if you'd gone up higher, well then the horizon line would be higher on the building. The horizon line's really close to the base of the building, which really accentuates the building height. And same thing, if you had been lower, those mountains may have disappeared. But where you are, you see the mountains, you know they're mountains, but they don't overtake the image. Really, just so many correct choices. There's something I don't understand about what you do, though. And as soon as I saw this, I went, how does? She, how did she do that? This is a six-minute exposure. You've got these beautiful painted clouds. It's clearly got some movement in the air or some wind. Mm-hmm. The lavender plants have no movement; they are tack sharp, and I don't understand that. Shouldn't they have been moving?
1: You you would think so. And someone else asked me that question. I I I had to really think about it. The plants are fairly rigid, um, but they do you know they do have some some movement. Um, there wasn't a lot of breeze where I was. And so, so it didn't seem to affect that. And I know I didn't even occur to me until someone asked me that question, but I've had that happen on other long exposure shots where technically the boats should have been moving. They should have been blurry, but they actually returned to like the same position <laughs> every time, you know, over that long period of, uh, of exposure. So yeah, if you blow it up and look, there's there's some movement there, but it's um, it wasn't like it was very, very breezy. And I like what you you brought up about the position of the tripod. That's um, you need that flexibility in height because if I would have gotten lower, then I wouldn't have those leading lines of the lavender, which are to me, so interesting. Exactly. You know, so pulling it up a little bit and, and, and just playing, I, I don't know. I think sometimes that's a, comp- you sort of feel what's right and, and you just go from there. And it's always good to vary the compositions and. and
0: well, and I've and seen too. landscape photographers have defaults, right? I set up my tripod. I take the center post. I raise it all the way up. I put my camera on because I'm six foot three or six foot one or whatever. And my camera goes on and that's where I shoot from. It's like, no, 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 no if you were, if the tripod's too high in this scene, that lowers the building, and now you've you've been smart enough to avoid the horizon line dead center, mm-hmm. but then you put the horizon line dead center in the building. So by lowering it, it lifts the building up above, and this is great for portraits too, right? If If you're shooting somebody and there's a mountain in the background and the mountain is intersecting their neck, Ooh, yes. change not the good. height of your camera to raise their head and their neck into an open spot so that you're not intersecting sensitive body parts. Um, it, just the right choices just in so many ways in all of your shots. Thank you. There, and by the way, for those that are listening or watching, as always on the blog post at BehindTheShot.tv, I've got a small gallery of Deborah's work where you can go see some of the other stuff. And there's some, I mean, really, it's just gonna make you want to go look at her website. So you could just go to her website too if you want to. But just some really cool use of long unusual uses of long exposure, unusual uses of color, unusual uses of composition, just really, really well done. So let let's let's go into the post side of things before we talk about this shot specifically. What is your normal post routine? So you come back from a trip, or I don't know if you edit on your trip. You're going to ingest those into the computer, cull them, and process them. What's your normal workflow there?
1: So I I do review the images, and um, again for that the impact, and you know something that 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 really moves me about the photograph, and so I'll, I'll choose. Uh, several photos to work with. Um, there's a lot of photos that you take on a trip and not all of them are perfect or, or what your goal shot was or the conditions weren't right. You know, I could have come to this location. What if there were no clouds, you know, <laughs> and that happens sometimes. So actually I'll get back and I'll work and I'll, and I'll um, review them and flag the ones I really want to work with and, um, and, and go from there. So, you know, I sort of. Do you, do you like use this. color?
0: Flags, or do you just use flags on and off? Are, are you in Lightroom? I'm assuming.
1: Actually, I'm in Photoshop, so it's a little bit easier. I, I find it circuitous to go from Photoshop to Lightroom to Photoshop. <laughs> so, I'm yeah, okay. I'm, I'm a sort of an old school Photoshop user, yes. And but I don't do the same type of um as a wedding photographer, or you know what I mean, or somebody who's going to do many images that have to be in the same consistency, so that's a little bit different. So, I, m- I may do that if I have a special project. Where I work through that, but uh, it's easier for something like this that is just a more one-of-a-kind. I'll treat is
0: that. Well. What would you have done to a shot like this in Photoshop?
1: In Photoshop, okay, so. I uh, try to look objectively, um, without in, first of all, I'm one of those weird people who can't really look at their pictures right away because I'm so emotionally connected. I just have I need some time frame. <laughs> so I'll come back and I'll and then I'll look at the pictures and, and I'll see I'll look at it technically and I'll look at what works, what doesn't work, what can be improved. You know, it's make I'm kind of a stickler. I like to try to get the horizon lines straight in the photograph before I even start. So but I'll double check that because You know, things happen. Um, And people, seriously, (laughs)
0: listen to what Deborah just said. (laughs) In a landscape photo, please take the time to level your horizon line.
1: We should be able to do that easier with the plot wall. So (laughs) it'll be
0: exactly faster Exactly.
1: Yeah. But it it does take some time. And, you know, if you're doing a type of video. So this same shot, you didn't see this and you don't know. But um, I also did a similar uh, shot of this as a time lapse. So you know again, you don't want to go back and correct all those images. Everything needs to be as good as possible in capture to be able to you know to create to create a time lapse. Um, so if I have a great subject I'm working on towards, uh, really building on that. So I'll, I'll try to make several different types of shots, but I'll look at this one objectively, see if there's any areas in the image that I might need to tone down or if I need to brighten up, because often the brightest part of an image will draw your eye as you well know. Uh, so I'm yep. looking at balancing the composition, making sure the light was on target and what I remembered and what I wanted to, what it wanted to be like. So there are certain things you can do. Um, I obviously use the grads, um, in, uh, in capture, but if there's a little area I can work with grads in Photoshop or, you know, Adobe camera Raw and, and be able to do pretty much what you do in Lightroom. So this, this shot is just
0: so beautiful. It oh, really you. is just an absolutely stunning image. And what you said about the brightest point, and I've said this numerous times, but I'm going to say it again, cause you brought up the brightest point. Your eye will normally go to the brightest point in an image. Brightest point or some people will say the most saturated point will do it as well. But Mm -hmm. uh, my buddy Troy Miller, uh, who many of the viewers or listeners may know, uh, Troy taught me a great trick for finding the brightest spot in the image if you're not sure what's going to draw somebody's eye, and that is rotate the image upside down. And when you rotate an image upside down it's kind of like going black and white in a way, right? You've you've removed the reality from it and now it's just shapes. The brightest Mm -hmm. spot will leap out and smack you in the face. It's wild, but it works really, really well. So that's a great tip. I love it. So let me go into a couple of tips from you. Most people will travel with family. will go on vacations. will take a camera with them. And nowadays, a lot of people like myself, I've tried to limit myself and only taken my phone or back in, in when we went to France. Actually, I took my phone in an OLO clip lens, just to push the limits. Right? See what I could do without without my SLR. Um, what is it that you see most people taking either landscape or long exposure shots do wrong, if anything?
1: Okay, that's that's a good question. So, I think for landscape. Photos just take it one step further, even backward to its lens choice. Um, you know, if you're using a crop sensor camera and you're using, um, if you picked up a 16 to 35, you know, then it's it's like shooting like with a 24 to 70. You really change the dynamics of the shot. And I find that through shooting that I reach for, I have a 14 to 24, which is a beautiful lens. And then Nikon came out with a 14 to 30 for the Z series, which has been uh, a amazing, an amazing lens because it's lighter and the filter system is so much smaller. The filter system for the 14 to 24 was huge. (laughs) So, um, keeping it light, um, and choosing the right tools for the job, so to speak. Um, if you're shooting landscapes and cityscapes, I, you know, I feel like that wide angle lens is really hard. It's hard to change the dynamics of the shot and the information in the composition. So if you're reaching, if you think, Oh, I'm just going to have this one lens that fits all. I'm just going to go with my 24-70. Yeah, you can. But it doesn't tell the same story. So you have to have the right lens to tell the story that you're interested in sharing.
0: Okay, I like that. That's a good one. What What's the one thing you think for travel photography that people that don't do it at your level, what do you think is the one thing they could do to improve the quickest? To improve
1: the quickest? I think some people struggle with the aspect of just getting sharp shots so they don't understand that they really should be using a cable release you know especially in that 30 second realm or you know or so you know, or more um and having a good tripod you know if you have your tripod all set up in your tripod head and it starts to sink then it destroys the shot so having the right gear and i know a lot of people go it's like oh yeah i got this you know uh, you know, a discount store or whatever, you know, and it's, it doesn't do the job that you need it to do. So I, I, early on, I realized really right stuff, the ball head, you know, that, that it was so essential because at the time I was doing a lot of um, bird photography, you know, I had a, a, a Wimberley and I, you know, it was a huge, heavy system, but it was what you needed to make the shot. So the type of photography will help define what type of tools that you need for the shots. And definitely don't, um, Use the features that you have available to you. You have, uh, if you're on a tripod, you can do the long exposure noise reduction, which keeps the shots beautiful and free of noise, reduces anything in post. Um, and use a cable release. You know, that's super helpful.
0: The cable release is such a great tip. Yeah. And if you're using an SLR, a DSLR, not a mirrorless, even mm-hmm. go with a mirror lockup if you really want to make sure that there's no movement in your body.
1: I know, it's so hard to think about that because I was so. I think as I go through this ritual with, with the, the earlier cameras and you know it's always mirror lockup. Oh wait, I had to close the viewfinder window. So the light doesn't come in. You know, there's all these little things, but switching to mirrorless freed me up. So I don't have to worry about closing the viewfinder. Either. That doesn't apply. I don't have to worry about um, other things. So I, do use the cable release. I like it, you know, because over six minutes, maybe there's big cloud cumber and I may just like, okay, I'm going to wait another 45 seconds on this one. Or, uh, you know, I can change the dynamics to that, but it, having the cable release allows the camera to function without you pressing the shutter, which can cause vibration, uh, in the shots, especially in that 32nd row.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're touching the body and, and yes. it can definitely move. Who is one photographer that you think people should follow?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. There are so. I know. Well, it depends on It's what like you're asking, "What's your favorite
0: in. TV show?" Seinfeld. <laughs> no, Modern <laughs> Family. No, Mash.
1: Um, I have so many favorites, and you know, it just depends on on uh, what you're doing. And and I've always been inspired by Tony Sweet. I think he's amazing. He uh, he he has that. He's so prolific and so ambitious, and he just does a, a tremendous amount of work. Um, and I, and I love everything he does. And uh, you know, I. Wow, Joe McNally. I mean, I don't even do anything like he does, yeah. but he's so inspiring. You know, I just get so enthused and and, and looking at that. But, but really, the ambassadors are. are and I mean, I, if I can plug the ambassadors, if you have an interest and in, in, in what their genre is, um, they are doing fantastic work, and they're so willing to share. And I think that's key. Some people are very secretive about techniques or you know everything like you know, and it's and it's. I don't feel that. And I know none of the uh, the ambassadors feel that they're very willing to share, you know, what they've experimented with, what they feel is a creative approach or, um, so yeah, it makes it a lot of fun.
0: One of, one of my favorite uh, presentations ever was Joe McNally Mm -hmm. at Photoshop world last year was just, it, it, when it ended, it was like, no, don't stop. (laughs) Just please keep going. Please, please, please. So Everybody you should know, blog post for this episode is at behindtheshot.tv. I've got a little write-up about Deborah. Uh, this image is there so that you can see it, the one that we talked about on the show. There's a small gallery of her work and links to everything. So let's talk about links really quick before we close out. Your website and your tutorials, If if you're watching the video version of this on YouTube or in your podcast app, those are coming up as lower thirds. But for those of you on an audio feed, what's your actual website?
1: On my website, and how anyone wants to find me is just Deb Sandage. But I would say most of my recent work in, um, is on Instagram. So it's super easy to find and navigate. And I try to give tips, techniques, inspirational points. So Deb Sandage in, um, on Instagram. Also on Twitter, the same. And of course, Facebook and is also Deborah Sandage.
0: So Facebook is Deborah Sandage. Uh, mm-hmm. Instagram and Twitter, Deb Sandage. And the yes. website is actually DebraSandage.com. So go check out any of those, the book on Amazon, Digital Infrared Photography. I'll have a link for that in the blog post if you want some infrared uh, uh, tutorial stuff. And other than that, Deborah, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the invitation to be on your show. Thank you so
0: much. It's been an absolute blast. I absolutely loved having you on. And to everybody, please. Go follow Debra, check out her work, check out her book on Amazon. I want to remind you about the stuff that I'm doing with Don Komarechka of Photo Geek Weekly uh, on Flickr. You just need to join Flickr and it doesn't have to be the pro account. Although again, they do need help right now. So join the pro account, but you can do the free account. Join the behind the shot group on Flickr. Once you're a member of the behind the shot group, submit your images to the group, tag them BTS critique. And if they're in the group and tagged BTS critique, Those are the images that we pick from for the image critique shows that we are doing over on the Behind the Shot YouTube channel. You can find all of my information at stevebrazzle.com. It's like Brazil, but two L's. Uh, You can find, of course, the podcast at behindtheshot.tv. I'm on Twitter and Instagram mostly. It's at Steve Brazel. It's like the country Brazil, but it's two L's. Uh, I'm on Facebook too. I just, I don't really like Facebook, so I'm not there a lot. But again, Instagram and Twitter, you can find me all day long over there. You can reach out to me on any of the social media stuff. I answer everything as much as I can. Uh, and other than that, it has been an absolute joy having, I think, I'm pretty sure it's my first Nikon ambassador ever. So this is a very exciting show to me. Thanks again to my de- my uh, guest, Deborah Sandage, and to everybody for watching. Please, if you do like the show, make sure you go to iTunes, drop a review, written review, star review, whatever it is. It really helps with discoverability, helps in a number of different ways, and I would appreciate it. To everyone else, thanks so much for watching, and we will see you on the next show. Thank <laughs> you.